Welcome back to the Next Frontier Podcast with Max Goldberg. This episode of the Next Frontier Podcast and where stuff comes from podcast is very unique. I talked to an implementer who's effectively and efficiently scaled a manufacturing business from zero to to nine-figure acquisition by a publicly traded company. Lee Benson, the founder and CEO of execute to win ETW is one of the world's most influential thinkers on achieving extraordinary results through organizational focus, alignment, and accountability. Over his 40 years as a successful entrepreneur, Lee developed his powerful yet practical approach called the Most Important Number and Drivers, or MIND Methodology, TM. Now Lee and his team at ETW help organizations worldwide better work together to improve what is most important. Lee started his leadership journey when he became the first employee in a small specialty electroplating services company. After the company lost virtually all of its business overnight, he purchased it. With only two employees, Lee immediately set out to build his vision to grow into Able Aerospace, a company with 500 employees and 2,000 customers in over 60 countries. Able is known in the aerospace industry as having the best culture, innovation, and ability to execute effectively in a highly complex and regulated environment. In 2016, Textron Aviation Inc., a Textron Inc. company, acquired Able Aerospace. Lee is extensively quoted and interviewed as an expert on leadership, execution, and strategy in numerous arenas, including accredited MBA courses, CNBC, and various publications. Lee is also a sought-after keynote speaker, sharing the stage with prominent business leaders like Jack Welsh and Blake Irving. His innovative, common-sense approach has helped thousands of employees and hundreds of public and private organizations do the right work in the right order at the right time to achieve their most important number. Lee is an avid guitarist, practices taekwondo, and enjoys vigorous outdoor activities. He sits on several philanthropic boards. Lee also works with high school and college students, introducing basic tenets of entrepreneurship and leadership. He and his family reside in Phoenix. It was a pleasure to talk to Lee, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation on the Next Frontier and Where Stuff Comes From podcast. I'm particularly excited about today's conversation with Lee Benson, because Lee is one of the few individuals who I've met along this Where Stuff Comes From journey, who's actually implemented from day zero all the way through scaling to a massive company that's creating massive value for the United States economy, who's actually created a fully integrated manufacturing vehicle within the United States, within the Pacific Ocean, to the Atlantic Ocean, to the Canadian border, to the Mexico border. Uh, Lee created an amazing operation that pretty directly supported the United States' ability to sustain and protect herself. So Lee, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. and with, with the introduction and bio that we read before we got started with this conversation, it's very clear that you know your numbers, you know your businesses, and you know how to do manufacturing. And I'd love to start by framing the conversation for where you are now, and then we'll loop back around to your extensive manufacturing background by asking you the question I love to ask all my guests. What are you excited about in 2021? Who is Lee Benson in 2021? And what are you looking forward to as we enter or as we have entered this next decade? Yeah, who I am today um, and my overall purpose for the work that I do is to uh, basically strengthen communities by improving workplace cultures. 
So learned a ton about that, got some amazing results, and we'll talk about that, you know, coming up here. And I'm I'm really excited about um, you know the potential for you know creating environments for eventually millions and millions of employees where it's a winning environment. They enjoy going to work. They're creating a ton of value, and 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 just thinking about getting that right. And and the reason I like to do that is my friends, family, and coworkers interact with the uh, you know the communities that are locally, the state level, uh, this community we call the United States of America. And I want it to be, to be just a, an incredible place to be. So selfishly, we get this stuff right on strengthening communities, the better it is for all of us to interact out there in the world. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll, we'll dive more into the work you're doing now towards the end of the podcast as we go you know, kind of chronologically through, through your extensive experiences. Before we get into that, though, and, and we'll probably spend probably half the episode on this, uh, and that's able engineering and the behemoth of an engineering powerhouse and engineering capacity and manufacturing capacity powerhouse that you built over the course of two decades. So let's start at the very beginning. What is able engineering? Um, both able engineering, able aerospace, the whole able group of companies and the engineer and the manufacturing engineering um, powerhouse that you built. Can you describe for for us what that is, what that what that was in your mind, and what that has evolved to be today? Yeah, absolutely. Started the first of those in '93, and I sold them collectively in 2016, and I stayed on for 17 months just to make sure the transition went really well. Um, what we did is repair, overhaul, and manufacture aircraft parts to support the aviation aftermarket. So we grew to about 2,000 customers in 60 countries around the world. And they would basically send the parts in as an example off of a 747, a lot of the components in the wing box. Um, every so many cycles or hours, they would pull them off the aircraft, bring them in. We'd make them like new and send them back out. So we safely reduced aircraft operating costs and saved literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year towards the end before I sold the company for aircraft operators over their next best value alternative, which was often buying a new part. And I wanna frame for the audience and, and for myself, why the aerospace market was a market where you could build a fully integrated uh, manufacturing vehicle you know, in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. What is yeah. different about the aerospace market versus something like the consumer electronics market or, or um, you know, the injection molding for just consumer appliances market? What, what, what's different about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So when you look at scale and capital equipment needs to do certain things, um, the aerospace market, you could vertically integrate um, um, probably medium in terms of difficulty. Um, if you're, if you're looking at, um, uh, you know, anything around computers and integrated circuits and all of that. The capital equipment is quite large, so it's hard to fully integrate all that stuff. But we were able to do it. And, and you have to kind of think about the journey. So in 93, 1993, I was told by my boss at the time, hey, um, we just lost our number one customer, which was 90% of our business overnight, and you have 30 days to close it or sell it. And this is an electroplating company where we're, we call it brush plating. So we're applying nickel, cadmium, other materials onto um, aircraft components as a way to salvage them by hand. That's why they call it brush plating. And so I couldn't find anybody to buy this thing. And I went back and said, look, I want to go this direction. I don't want to do work for a large OEM, an original equipment manufacturer. 
uh, for $300 and then they sell that for $10,000 to their customer, I'm gonna go directly to the end user, a helicopter operator to start with because saving $1,000 is a big deal for them. And, and if you let me do that, I'll assume the debt, it was roughly $600,000 in total debt. And, and either way you walk away from that and, and we'll go this direction. And he basically said, you don't know what you're talking about. You've never done it before, but if you want to do that, I'll let you do it. So I took over the company. First year, our sales was just over $300,000, almost went out of business at least 12 times and, and had a couple of guys left standing with me. One of them said, um, it'll never work, but sign me up anyway. I just want to see what's going to happen. And the other one said, I think it'll actually work. And I couldn't afford to pay them the first year. So I gave them some provisional stock and they both did incredibly well when I ended up selling the company or we sold the company um, several years later, 23 years later. So we started with that one process and I could always see um, right out of the gate, I could see a path of $5 million in the work that we would do. It's like, we'll, we'll, we'll get these parts in, we'll do the engineering to design a repair We'll do the electroplating, which we had as a core process, and we'll subcontract the machining, the grinding, and other non-destructive testing, et cetera, whatever's required for the repair, until we had enough to justify bringing in a process. And so we would follow parts around town to make sure that, that everything was done correctly because we had no setup parts. You get one part, you have to repair that part. It's not like a new production lot where you get 10 setup pieces. And when there was enough to justify, we brought in an, an outside diameter grinding machine. Yay, we did that. And I remember uh, a friend of mine with a machine shop, a guy named Terry, he gave me uh, this, this uh, machine for about $2,000. And we had a piece of paper where every month I would make a payments so over two years. I still have that piece of paper uh, somewhere around here where we paid that off. And so that was... Um, that was really an interesting start. And then sales started to grow. The second year we did so well that, that we um, actually paid the, the two guys that agreed to work for stock and not pay the first year, paid them back for everything they didn't make in the first year had they made the salary all the way along. And we just kept growing from there. We brought in more machining equipment, uh, more chemical processing, more non-destructive testing, and just kind of kept building it that way. And this path of $5 million it was only a few years where, bam, we got right there. Then I could see the path to $20 million and it wasn't that much long before we got there. And, we, and then we grew, you know, to around a hundred million dollars at the time that I sold it and, uh, you know, very profitable business and 90, I'd say 97, 98% of everything we did was vertically integrated. And it was a, an incredibly cool business. Um, you could Towards the end of the journey towards the end of the journey. And, and so it wasn't, hey, out of the gate, we're going to have this behemoth doing all this work all over the country. It was like, what can we see on the path, you know, to that next step in terms of, um, you know, total sales, the service that we provide for our customers, the value that we create, and what we should be vertically integrating all the way along. And vertical integration of the business that I had, super important because, um, it was really low volume of things. You couldn't send parts out and expect quality to come back um, because they typically want you know higher volumes, and half the time they they mess up the the initial part, and that can be quite expensive uh, to make that happen. So there was a big incentive to do it. That said, um, we were the only one in our space that I'm aware of that actually fully integrated. So lots of repair stations. 
Um, so the work that we did, we'd have to be certified by the Federal Aviation Administration as a repair station. Well, there, I, I believe in the United States at the time, over 4,000 independent repair stations and then several repair stations that were part of the OEMs like Boeing and Sikorsky, GE, et cetera, and, and many more internationally. We were the only ones that fully integrated and the others, we could see the problems they had outsourcing yeah. special processing. Yeah. So, so there's a few, there's a few lessons in there that I'll just take a minute to dissect just for myself and, and, you know, bounce the ball back to you. The first, and I'll, again, we'll, we'll come back to this later. The first is you had a lot of boldness and, and if we weren't on air, I would say something else that you had besides for boldness, but you had a lot of big, um, boldness to, to really dive after this problem and do this. I imagine as a young engineer, what were you, what were you working on at this company at the time at the electroplating company when you dove in? Yeah, the, the main source of income for me is so I, I started at something that turned into this company in, in 1982. And I just needed a job to support my primary passion, which was playing music and rock and roll bands. So in the 1980s, I played guitar and sang, um, not as a lead singer, most of the time anyway, um, most of those years over 300 nights a year. And so this job during the day was sort of supplementing uh, the income on, on my other business, which was essentially this, this band. And, and then when the, uh, when the time came to, you know, we you know, close it or sell it and, and go this other direction, um, I was a musician and I'd, I'd gone to school for business, um, uh, but that's my passion was, was really the, the music at the time. But then I, I kind of learned that, you know, it's, it, it's almost like writing songs, you know, running a business. It's very creative, um, how you put all the pieces together to, to uh, you know, create the most value and you continually improve on that, et cetera. So I, I ended up kind of loving both sides of it. Uh, but it was music and then it turned into business. And even in 97, when we had two record label offers for the band, I chose to just keep going down the business route um, because I can play music whenever I want on my time. Um, and, and we were very successful at that point and it just kept getting better. So interesting, interesting crossroads, but yeah, it was, wasn't an engineer. It was more of a musician. Were you, were you working as a technician at the company? Were you working in business development at the company? What was your, what was your role and function? Yeah. At, at the time we had 25 employees when we lost our primary customer overnight, it was allied signal at the time today. That's Honeywell. We went down to three employees and I was essentially the general manager of this thing and, and guiding everything. So doing a little bit of all of it, I could do all of the work because I started actually doing the work. Um, I was managing the teams. I was organizing it from a lean manufacturing standpoint. I was going out and selling it really everything. And even on the engineering side, I would put the engineering packages together, but a degreed engineer we had on the team, he would do the math and sign off on the repair. So virtually did everything. And as the company grew, um, there really with welding, it didn't matter what it was. There was virtually nothing that I hadn't done along the way. Uh, cause I, I wanted to know enough to be dangerous and, and it, uh, I think it really helped with that too. And, and it also, um, uh, to, to your point about vertical integration, it made me not afraid of adding anything. Hey, we need, we need um, high velocity robotic cold spray. Let's put that in just get a robot and get some helium to really, you know, pump up the velocity and nothing scared me uh, going through that. And for most folks, 
I've never done that. I don't know how to do that. So that instantly becomes the obstacle or the barrier and they don't go across it. And I, I looked at it after all this experience um, that each thing that we added, it was like, yeah, no big deal. How hard could it be? Let's just go do it. And we'll, figure, awesome. it we'll figure it out as we go. I mean, so I'll, I'll, I'll pop into the next note of ex- that I took away from what you were talking about it with this whole journey is just extreme ownership. And Jocko Willing talks about that quite a bit, or he's in his words, extreme ownership, but this extreme ownership concept on, on the company scale of, Hey, we need to own every piece so that our quality is higher. So we could better serve our aerospace clients that are only sending us one part. If we mess that up, we need to go buy that same part. I don't know if this is how it works in your business, but we need to go figure out how to replace that part, which will cost a lot of money. So bringing that in and taking that extreme ownership out of necessity, it seems like it really helped you excel over your competition. And then within your own trajectory within this this process, you taking extreme ownership of all the processes and really understanding how it works, building relationships with the folks in your team really allowed for this whole project to succeed and thrive um, because you weren't afraid. Which then leads me into the next lesson that I took away of self-sustenance and even in, as a business owner and operator, being able to not necessarily be an expert in all, or, or a specialist in all the processes, but be able and capable to, uh, if, if need be, jump in and plug in to any of these processes with boldness. seems like that also really helped you excel. And one of the things that I, I talk about when it comes to where stuff comes from is you don't have to, even in your own home, you don't have to always fix your electrical. You don't always have to grow your own food all the time. You don't have to know how to do basic maintenance. You don't have to always do basic maintenance on your car, but having these different skill sets allows you to be um, sufficiently self-sufficient that if need be, you're able to step in and, and take care of these various things. And it's interesting to port those lessons over to the manufacturing enterprise and the leader in a manufacturing enterprise. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, it, unless you have more, more detailed comments, which I'm sure you do on, on that note, my next question is going to be, can you just define vertical integration versus horizontal integration and lay the groundwork for what that means for folks listening to this podcast? Yeah. What, uh, so let me ask you a quick question. So the vertical integration, yeah. is how I viewed what we did, what's your definition of horizontal integration? Yeah. So, so companies like a Boeing that have 50 bajillion different subcontractors that they all need to work in tandem and they all need to have their supply lines operating so that they can be able, so that Boeing can actually go and run their main assembly lines with all these subcontractors feeding into each other. And then all their subcontractors have, have different subcontractors um, rather than having everything in house and, you know, stacking it on top of each other, like you were doing or like SpaceX does now where they're doing pretty much all their materials development in-house. They do their all their manufacturing in-house. They try to minimize the amount of subcontractors that they have to keep costs down, be more agile, be more responsive, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, we, we actually have a lot of clients we're working with. That, so on the, on the horizontal integration side, um, they're just dependent on all of that stuff working. And I think the biggest challenge over there is how do you get them aligned? I mean, you, you just outlined it really well. Um, and so mapping all of that out in terms of really what's most important from an outcome standpoint for each one of those contractors and, and, and making it um, really transparent in terms of how they fit into all the other pieces. And when one goes down a little bit, it affects three or four more uh, so they can really see it and not here's your contract you deliver on this date. Um, I think one of the bigger challenges is not knowing how you missing a date or a quality issue or something else affects everything else down or upstream. 
It's interesting. I had a conversation and there's obviously a, you know, a dichotomy here. You have to balance both of these different, different, um, different business strategies. And I had a conversation with Keith Gar- Gargulio from PTC. Um, I'm not sure if you know Keith or not. I should probably introduce the two of you because you, you talk about this, you geek out about all this all day long. So Keith and I were talking about a culture of SaaS and creating a culture of software as a service where the first thing you think about is, okay, not how do I, especially in the software world, not how do I go build an entire on-site data infrastructure with all these licenses and packages that need to live in a, in a server room on-site. The first thing to think about is, okay, how do I, from a, from a rapid iteration and startup perspective, identify the SaaS products that I need to use, pay $10 a month just to access that software as I'm using it instead of the couple of thousand dollars I'm using to stand up the server room. And that's one area where it seems like um, this more horizontal approach of going and finding companies that you can, uh, on a peer-to-peer level, uh, purchase from, um, where the vertical integration doesn't make a whole lot of sense to build your own server stack, but the horizontal integration or the SaaS, the SaaS culture makes a lot more sense. So it seems like there's this interesting dichotomy. Um, and that seems like what you, were, what you were hitting on about how, some of your clients that you're working with now. Well, I think the challenge there is as being really thoughtful about what's the ultimate value um, impact going to be. So I, I always think about decisions uh, at the top level of an organization and, and what you choose to do or not do as um, what will give us the best net effect um, after a certain amount of time. So if it's a smaller business, maybe it's one to three years. If it's a larger business, it could be longer than that. If you want, you could say we want the best positioning for 50 years out. But What's going to be the best net position over the medium and long run? That that's how we would actually make decisions, and and so making the decision to buy a bunch of software products for ten bucks a piece or whatever it is may actually, if you're thoughtful about it, be a lot more expensive in the long run than than spending a million dollars setting it up in house. And one example of that was um, in 1999, I was looking for an ERP to run our business and. And I, I couldn't find anything flexible enough. It was really expensive. If you wanted to make a change, it, there's a change process. It could be you know, three months, whatever it is to get it in there. So I said, you know what? We're just going to build our own ERP. And so I hired a software team in 99. I started Able Systems and Technology to do it. Every one of my friends and advisors said, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. It's not your core competency. It won't work. But what I realized is, but I know what we want and I want flexibility. And I, if we have a way to create value faster by integrating this piece of um, supply chain as an example, I want to be able to get it the next day and, and be able to use that tool. And it was wildly successful. I mean, fast forward, we had 250 plus databases tied together. Our biggest customers like Airbus helicopters and, and Bell helicopter and others saw what we could do with our ERP and said, we want that. We can't even do 10% of that with ours. And they spent hundreds of millions of dollars with SAP in one example. And, and so we did build it wildly successful. Yep, spent probably a couple million dollars on it. That might've been a little bit less, maybe, um, or more than, than going with somebody else, but we got exactly what we wanted. And I thought it was a huge competitive advantage. So long, long way around saying, I think we just need to be really thoughtful about that short, medium and long-term best net result. That's a wonderful way to put it and summarize the dichotomy, especially 
you know, for a small company probably makes more sense to just go use whatever the $15 a month SaaS package is. But if you're a, starting a new defense contractor, for example, probably makes sense to have a few servers that aren't connected to the internet uh, stationed on site in case there's cyber attacks or in case you don't have exactly what you want or in case the existing SaaS products have, have their own compliance issues. Yeah. Awesome. So next next set of uh, next line of questioning, going back to, to Able and what you learned there. Can you walk us through, now that we've kind of talked about what vertical integration really means, especially in your context, what were some of the key technologies? So when you're starting a manufacturing shop, um, let's start start from ground zero. When you're starting a manufacturing shop, what are the different processes that actually take place within that? I don't know, how many square feet was your building up? 50,000, 100,000? Uh, the, the last one we built from scratch was 200,000 square feet and it was too small oh, wow. we moving in. So we had to lease three additional buildings around the airport. And uh, I even even designed in plans to extend the building, which they've done after I left, and add an additional hangar, which was quite large. So it was it was pretty big. Um, and and people say, well, yes, we are in the category of manufacturing, but I felt like it was more of a service. You know, our, our whole mission was to safely reduce aircraft operating costs by providing resourceful component repair, overhaul, and approved replacement parts solutions. And so with that, something would come in, we want to find a solution that is more cost-effective than the other solution. And if it's buying a new part, it's always more cost-effective than that. We want something more reliable. So if you think about the value stream and how, how we look at it, um, part comes in and we've never done it before. Engineering does the analysis. So we needed a lab to be able to do a lot of that testing. You know, is it is it aluminum, is it steel, you know, uh, the hardness, all that kind of stuff that goes with it. So we fully understand it, understand the failure and, and then design a repair that will be um, at least as good as the new part, but generally it was even better. It would last longer, more reliable uh, going forward. So fully design that, now we have to get that approved um, properly. We treated everything like a major repair. So if we ever had to defend anything in court, if there was ever an issue, plus I just thought it was a safer way to go, um, that we wouldn't have a problem and knock on wood, um, well over a hundred million hours of, uh, our parts flying around out there without a single in-service failure that caused an aircraft to have to come out prematurely out of service. So, um, all of that, now we need to reproduce it. And it could be really simple. It's just one part we need to do. Um, maybe right, just clarifying, part. clarifying. Re you're not reproducing the part, you're reproducing the repair when you see a similar failure in another component of the same you know, skew or unit number. Right. We're, well, we're Got designing it. repair for one part. We're repairing that part, sending it back to the client. Now we have a repair that we can sell to anybody else out there on the planet Got it. that has the same issue. In some cases, the parts weren't repairable and we would reverse engineer the part and actually manufacture it. So we would make the part. So through the repairs itself, we produce tens of thousands of bushings and other components that would go into that on a monthly basis. Uh, but we would also create entirely new parts. And it could be one part, could be an assembly. An assembly could have 1500 pieces in it uh, going through. So wildly complicated. So in that, in that, um, in that, you know, remanufacturing or reverse, reverse engineering, were you re reverse engineering parts that were still being produced by a Boeing or an Airbus or a Bell helicopter, or were you only doing it for older, older components that were now out of service that you were actually able to legally 
I guess, from an IP perspective, what, what do the laws look like there? How were you able to go and, and re-engineer those parts rather than the OEMs having, having the in, rights to... In, in most cases, you could go buy the parts from the OEM. We were a, a much more cost-effective alternative. And if you think about it from a safety standpoint, we're not, we're not um, and that's an interesting argument that OEMs would make, we're not, um, uh, we're not stealing IP. We're looking at the failure, we're designing a repair, we're not changing the part number, we're not changing the serial number. If we were to do that, um, I would go to jail because there'd be a giant safety issue there. And, and so the FAA put this process together where they would certify repair stations to develop these repairs to keep the planes flying safely. If the only alternative for aircraft operators was to buy new parts every single time from an OEM, their cost would literally double to fly the aircraft. And, and so from a safety standpoint, uh, people start cutting corners when it becomes uh, that expensive. So yeah, I mean, from a sustainability standpoint too, you know, we can put environmental aside, but business sustainability too, and just having access to those materials and those resources both from a, hey, this part, this product's not made anymore. Can you repair it for us? But also from a, these materials have to come from, some, from somewhere. Um, and these materials coming from somewhere means, you know, we need to have more of them as we're producing more parts. But if you're just doing the repairs, there's an interesting where stuff comes from thread there as well, from this kind of closed loop aerospace economy um, that, that I'm finding interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just... Uh, oh, that's, I think it, it's, we could go for a while down, yeah. this, uh, down this rabbit hole. The way I looked at it, is we kept aircraft flying much longer, uh, i.e. aircraft in service much longer than they otherwise would have been because it would have been cost prohibitive. And because they're flying a whole lot longer, some of the more expensive parts with really high uh, profit margins like uh, main rotor blades on a helicopter, um, they, the OEMs would sell more of it. So I could make it a really strong um, argument and put a model together, which we've done, that yes, you may have lost you know, collectively X number of dollars in sales of parts, but you gained even more than that because the more expensive parts that you would sell, you sold a lot more of them over time because of us. We were actually really good for the legacy uh, helicopter and, and fixed wing aircraft models like, like 747s as, as an example. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, it's a interesting to see. And I think that I just came up with the name for this episode where aerospace parts come from and go. Um, I was I was thinking about how we how we would frame this from a from a naming perspective. That's a, that's an irrelevant conversation though. Um, coming back around, so so I, I would say what 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 did you what it was the total there seven hundred fifty thousand square feet a million square feet of uh, of factory space. I think at the end um, when I left in the three hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand square foot range total with all the facilities, and today it's a little bit more than that because they've grown since I sold it, which I'm super happy to see. Awesome. So within that 350,000, 500,000 square feet, what actually goes on? What are the, let's, let's break it down on a kind of fundamental um, engineering and from a fundamental engineering and manufacturing perspective, where, what, what is the magic that's actually happening? Yeah. The uh, think of receiving as uh, the triage in an operating room. Parts come in, we get them unboxed, take pictures of everything uh, to make sure that we're, we're documenting that in case there's any, any um, you know, potential issue around what we got or, or didn't, didn't receive from the customer. And then it goes to uh, receiving inspection and there could be one piece, there could be 10 pieces in the assembly, there could be over a thousand pieces. 
Um, we determine what needs to be done. Then the customer needs to be communicated with uh, to say, this is what we found. And here's a whole teardown report. And there's a really lengthy, comprehensive document that they would get to answer all their questions, not just here's a price, you know, take it or leave it. Um, so they could really understand it. They approve that. And then those parts would break off and go, um, you know, a number of different directions throughout the facility. And, and the biggest challenge was um, when I when I sold the company, the average uh, turnaround time with all this complexity was about 28 days. And I could see a path of 14 days. Um, so it would take off, uh, get all the processing done, come back together, final inspection, testing, whatever is necessary. And then we go back to the customer on average um, in 28 days. And, and so when, once it comes in and it goes out, it could go to the electroplating shop where there's... Um, um, you know, chrome plating, electroless nickel could go to a pre-machining or grinding operation. Could go to a non-destructive testing area. Um, you know, all all the way. Those that's, that's at the component level, and then there's entire assemblies uh, that we have um, that we that we would process. And same thing there. And then even entire aircraft. Uh, we had one client that pretty much sent us the equivalent of a of a, a data plate for a helicopter. And we rebuilt the entire helicopter around the data plate, uh, putting it in. So complexity from not much to, you know, really complex. So there's a, there's a thread that I want to pull in a second about rebuilding the Saturn V rocket from the Apollo missions. Because I know that we cannot currently do that if we wanted to. And I think you're a great person to ask about how we would go about doing that if we really wanted to. But I'll get there in one second. Rewinding to the, to the specific processes that happen in your in your repair shop. I want to give listeners a taste of just how complicated the airplanes, helicopters, and aerospace vehicles that they're flying on actually are. And this is only in the repair stage. This doesn't even account for the initial manufacturing stage. So let's let's dive in. Let's pick maybe three of the um, three of the, you know, let's say most complicated and commonly used processes in your repair shop. Um, I'll let you, I'll let you pick. And I just would like to drill into how they actually work, what they really are. And then there's, there's some interesting where stuff comes from material sourcing threads to pull. Um, once we do that, if you're, if you're open to that line of conversation. Yeah, sure. Sure. So the three most complicated processes. Complicated, commonly used, like let's, let's give the complicated a weight of 80% and commonly used a weight of 20% and pick where we fall. Yeah, complicated was more on the sort of the leading edge of technology for repair. Uh, so one one of the processes we put in place was um, uh, robotic cold spray. So this high velocity um, um, sort of a um, impact process. So the the material, whether it's uh, nickel or or chromium or some sort of a composite, would come out. It's such velocity that when it hits the metal surface that we're trying to repair by building it back up, um, it creates a metallurgical bond. It's, it's, it's like welding when it comes in there. So getting that right with all the different materials, um, it allowed us to repair things that were otherwise um, you know, unrepairable before without making a new part. So something has a hole in it or it has a big chip or dent in it and that dent or chip or structurally makes the, makes the part unusable. It's a, it's a failure. It's a failure. Um, it's like a, it's a crack or some sort of fracture. So you're actually spraying high velocity particles of this material. Is it the, is it the same alloy mix, or is it a, is it a new alloy that you're adding on top of it? 
it can be the same alloy mix. We could be building up a worn out piece of aluminum, um, or it could be uh, it's steel and we're putting nickel on it so it survives um, in the saltwater environment better without rusting. So it's just a, that was more of a complicated process to dial in. It was cutting edge. It was new. We were repairing things like um, um, uh, Apache uh, helicopter main rotor mass with it that were not repairable um, any other way that we found. Um, so that 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 would be one. Um, you know, some of the other more complicated processes are just the programming that's involved in multi-access machining to get that right. You, you could have a, uh, a component that's anywhere from $10,000 to over $100,000, and you've got this high-speed machine coming in, and it's got a machine, you know, 15 different surfaces, and you, you have all the relative, um, uh, you know, uh, datums on the part that have to be just right in terms of how they, uh, they work with each other, intersects, et cetera. So those are pretty complicated to get right. Um, every single time, there's a lot of time that went into making sure that that, that works. Um, one, one thing I would say about this, as long as you follow the rules that the FAA put forward and how you maintain aircraft, you can keep them in pretty much like new condition for just about forever You know, if, as you go through it. So even though they're wildly complex, um, we are safer now than we've ever been. And it's because of all the lessons we've learned and the continual refinement of um, how to keep things more and more safe. And the only time something typically goes wrong is when somebody didn't follow the rules. They forgot to put a safety wire on, or they didn't do this check or that check, or they designed something not following the process. But the vast, vast majority of the time, repair stations all over the planet are doing really good work, um, you know, keeping us safe out there even as, as complex as it is, because the, the overarching complexity of all of it is a lot to get your head around, but the complexity of the one thing that you're doing, not so much. So we're, we're just taking all that complexity all the way down to a whole bunch of really straightforward, simple processes. So what, what, yeah, completely. What I'm getting is you have all of these different processes within your repair shop that basically takes some really complicated robotics some really complicated material science and some really complicated, maybe artificial intelligence, but I guess that falls into the, into the robotics category and merges them all together to either add material to something, cold spray, for example, or take material away from it in machining. That's kind of the box of what the operations that you're doing at your shop are, but each of those operations and each of those robotic systems and the material science that's associated with it or the machining that's associated with it is extremely complex, um, but also pretty easy to do if you follow the rules or all the way around. It's pretty simple, but, but pretty difficult to do unless you're following the rules, something like this. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, when I sold the company, I think we had somewhere just north of 10,000 repairs that we developed and a couple thousand parts that we reverse engineered to manufacture to go into that. And every one of the operations uh, required to do the repairs and manufacture the parts, there was a traveler with follow steps one through 10 or 18 or 250, whatever it happens to be. At each step, you're signing off, you're verifying, you're testing, use this tool, um, you know, et cetera. So once you get it laid out and you follow it, um, it, it, it just works. And I, I always think of it as, uh, you know, most people say, wow, we've got a really complex business. And I look at it, I'm like, well, I'm not sure.
but I'm pretty sure that we had a business that could be defined as wildly complex. Um, you know, over a million operations a month with 500 plus employees at the, at the Phoenix Mesa gateway airport uh, facility. And, and, um, um, all of this stuff again, had to be processed and go out in a, in less than a month. It was just an incredible machine. But my, I looked at it and said, our job is to simplify uh, complexity. And then once we've done that, we want to simplify further the simplicity that we came up with out of it. And, and so there's just, there's just little to no chance of an error all the, all the way down to paperwork. Um, if we sent a, a part and it could have been perfectly repaired and assembly overhauled, tested over to the other side of the planet and a, a quality control person didn't sign a certification, um, they can't use it and it goes into quarantine. I mean, this is how strict everybody is about following the process. So great, that's easy. You can't even print the document unless the, the, the quality control technician electronically signed it. You know, so there's like all these things you can do um, that we learned over the years to make sure we absolutely get it right. And that's the process side. So if the factory is a black box, that's the process side. What was your exposure to, to, I guess, your exposure is probably unique relative to other companies who are actually manufacturing new products because you had a lot of your raw materials coming in and the products that were coming in to be repaired. But what, I'm curious, what was your exposure to to supply chains and what I call you know general stuff chains of how you were getting the raw materials you're using for your cold spray, for your machining? Um, what was your exposure to that like? And how did that how does that differ from if you were a true manufacturer in the sense that you were creating um, large numbers of the same parts at scale? Yeah, I would say that we um, interfaced with pretty much all the same suppliers, just uh, in some cases, similar volume, in some cases, higher or uh, lower volume in, in what we used. Um, but we would make a lot of parts from scratch. So we'd have to, uh, you know, get the material from, you know, if it's aluminum or steel or some exotic aerospace alloy, we get it from the same sources that the OEMs would and same, uh, you know, uh, surface treatment processes, all of that. We just chose over time to bring more of the processing, really virtually all of it in house. And with that supply chain for aerospace, where what is the how did how have you seen because you you were doing this for twenty five years it, around approximately yeah. um, how did you see the supply chains and where that stuff was coming from where the raw aluminum where the raw steel where the I don't know what what goes into your cold spray mixes but probably some nickel probably some more esoteric uh, elements where, how did you watch that supply chain evolve over the past twenty five years what were some of the the more macro things that you noticed. That, that's a great question. Um, you know, our, our biggest challenge when it came to supply chain was, was getting, um, getting parts that were already manufactured. And that's what led us to make, make more of them. When it came to the raw materials coming in, prices would fluctuate, but being able to get that stuff was almost never an issue for us. Um, we didn't have the volumes that a Boeing would have or something along those lines. And because they were working all of their supply chains constantly, it made it easier for us to get, you know, the materials that we needed coming in. But in terms of changes, um, I, I think it got really bad through COVID for most of our clients out there. And it just, everything stopped. And now we're trying to get it started again. We didn't really have any of those challenges. You know, price of gold might go up and we did gold electroplating. Um, but for the most part, um, it just worked and you know, have a system where you're not dependent on one supplier. I mean, all the basic things that you would 
you would think make common sense. But from our side, not a lot of hiccups over the 23 years before I sold it and the 17 months after I sold it. And so you took a lot of the lessons that you learned building this business, managing this business, operating this business, and you've gone down a new rabbit hole. Um, you know, you, you're building execute to win now, which is more of a, a consulting oriented services, trying, trying to, from what I understand, to still the key business systems and business management lessons that you learned down to help small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and even large businesses um, be more effective, be more efficient and win. Uh, so can you talk to me a little bit about that? What, what is the current, the current business endeavor? Yeah, I actually have four different businesses. And the one you're talking about is the one I'm most, pa- most passionate about. It's, it's Execute to Win, or as we say, ETW. And I think the problem that we're solving for is how do you get teams of any size, shape um, within any organization out there to do the work of improving what's most important in a way that um, gets great results and doesn't require a star to be in the room. And, and I remember uh, back in the aerospace uh, side of it, lots of employees, lots of attention on what we were doing, dozens of CEOs saying that they wanted to get the same results that we were getting. And I said, great, you can use this. And here's what I'm doing. And then I found out that not one of them could actually do it. And they didn't say it didn't work. They just felt bad. They didn't have the discipline to drive it. And so I set out on this journey, how do I come up with a operating methodology that will work for 80% plus of all teams out there and knock on wood, it's actually working so far for 100% of the teams. And there's been quite a few that have gone through it. We call it the MIND methodology, which stands for most important number and drivers. And, And it's a way to organize what's most important and cascade that and map it throughout the entire organization. And then it deals with how teams do the work of improving each one of those most important numbers. Now, here's here's the driver for me, and I I talked about it a little bit in the beginning. Um, What I noticed with 500 plus employees in one location is that this sort of approach to doing the work, um, it created a community where employees said, I'm never working anywhere else. I had dozens of spouses over the years unsolicited say my husband or wife is a better person to live with after less than a year of working at the company. Um, and I, I, I saw this community where if somebody had something unfortunate happen, you would have dozens of employees surround them and make it, uh, make it as right as they could given the tragedy. And, and this just happened because of the community. And so I, I realized, you know, uh, the strength and health of communities is the, is the most important thing. And the stronger a community is, and it can be your family, your friends, your school, where you work, um, but the stronger it is, um, you need less and less support from the outside. And the only ticket to be part of a healthy community is that you're, you're really contributing to creating value within that community, the material or emotional or leadership value when it comes to an organization. So with that, that's what I set out to solve. And it's been an interesting journey um, because I don't believe anybody else has really solved for that. And whenever you read books about a guru that got these amazing results, I would say it's because she or he got those results. Um, um, not, not something that everybody can easily do. It, it's dependent on the star to make it happen. So how do we create a system that everybody can get, all teams can get great results, have better conversations and turn into solid middle performers and eventually even more stars on their own. So that's what, we, that's what we set out to do. We have a lot of clients that we work with and, and it's really fun to watch. And 
Um, whenever we do the work, we're installing a methodology. It takes about a year to make it like breathing, but within the first few weeks, they're completely changing how they're making decisions, the actions that they're following up on, and not uncommon at all for uh, for-profit companies within one year to be at a run rate of twice the profit they've ever made before. And the same thing with nonprofits, raising twice the money to have the impact that they want to have um, um, as an organization than they ever did before. Teams is really important. And where, where our stuff comes from, it comes from teams. It comes from people actually producing things and operating efficiently, operating effectively. So as we're getting into to ETW, can you talk a little bit about your team at ABLE in more detail and how you thought about finding labor, how you thought about labor, how you thought about fostering community, and how you thought about establishing that that sense of being a better being a better employee, being a better spouse, being a better person that you mentioned uh, a few times already. Can you drill into that and tell us more about your framework and how you came on to this um, onto this this hyper effective uh, tool in facilitating a more efficient where stuff comes from uh, business or enterprise? Yeah, it's 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 quite a journey, um, but I would say simply the number one job of the person at the top of an organization is to create an environment um, that causes all the right behaviors to happen where people will be as successful as they choose to be and it encourages them to do so. So it's really creating this energizing environment. There's a lot of components that go into that. Clarity around what's expected and where you stand 100% of the time. How many employees or what percentage of employees and organizations can say that they know exactly what's expected and where they stand 100% of the time? It's a pretty small percentage. So create that environment. What about compensation in general? Um, it, it needs to be perceived as equitable or fair, even if it's lower than what you think it should be, if it's equitable and fair with everybody else in the organization, um, you're not throttling productive energy. So that's a big piece of it. Um, you wanna drive the right behaviors there as well. If somebody creates more value, they should see that as a direct line to making more money, whether it's in base pay or incentive pay. Um, um, how you organize alignment to improving what's most important. So as an organization, what's the one number that says you're creating, um, you know, the most value or that says you're winning or losing the game. And does every team in the organization have one most important number that drives all the right behavior that when improved will also improve the next level up and support the top level profit or cash flow, whatever that number is in the for-profit world, um, impact in the nonprofit world. So it's, it's really creating that alignment, creating that environment. That was my most important job. And that's what I conveyed to every single leader going through the organization. And back then we actually cascaded quality, safety, delivery, um, you know, customer experience and culture type goals all the way to the front line. Um, employees interacted with those things on a regular basis. Most of them on the performance side on a monthly basis, the culture um, side of it every six months, come up with an example of how you've applied a particular behavior or value um, that um, you use to create more value for the company and take a shot at the ROI. How did applying it, you know, in, in your instance, uh, uh, improve customer experience and or profitability? So I, I think that's what's most important. And then when it comes to finding stars, not interested in going to find all the people on the street looking for a job. I want the stars that are out there. So we want to have really wide, deep relationships with industry associations, our customers, our suppliers, all of that, 
to identify the folks that we want to be on the team uh, and for sure incentivized employees that if you hire somebody and they, uh, they pass the cultural uh, filter test and they make it a certain amount of time and they're delivering results, you get, you get more and more money over time for that person coming on board. So um, a lot of our, even back then, I, I always thought we competed harder for talent than we ever did for business. Um, and even back then, most of our competitors were really struggling to find talent. We didn't. I mean, we had files of people waiting to come into the company. I can think of examples where a couple of years of somebody hitting me up, I really want to be, it's like, yeah, you're a star, but there's a few stars burning brighter than you in the hopper. Um, and then after a couple of years, we'd bring them on board when there was finally something, you know, that opened up that made sense. So it's a, uh, it's a big question that you ask. I, I think when you do the right stuff and you create the right environment, there's so much that goes into that. The stars will want to come work for you. And I'm not talking about winning a best place to work trophy or, emblem, you know, in some community, most of that stuff is just um, focused, in my opinion, on on how you're perceived, not what you actually are. Like, we need to win the best places to work so more people will want to work here and bring them in, but they get there. And if it's not, then they're telling 10 friends. Does that, does that make sense? That completely makes sense. And the reason I ask that question as we go into to ETW is because from what I've seen over the past 12 months is labor is becoming very difficult to source um, in the United States right now, partly because of the pandemic. Uh, I read an article that 40% of millennials are planning to quit their jobs in the next three to five months. They're calling it the great, oh, wow, I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but I'll put a link to the blog in the, in the description because there's a really fun word um, associated with it that someone came up with, like not Texodus or, or office Exodus, some, something like this about people not wanting to go back to the office following COVID and being so used to the remote work situation. But it seems to me like we're really struggling as a country right now to find a productive labor force that's able to do these, these, um, these really complex processes and help your company thrive. So as we go into the ETW methodology and, and lessons you've learned, I think the key for me that I took away when I was speaking with you is it's really about creating a work environment where people want to come to work and you set your teams up for success because that's how you enable yourself to be able to continue to make stuff. And if we can continue to make stuff, we can continue to thrive. And if we can't continue to make stuff, we can't continue to thrive. And then the labor shortage only gets worse because we're not thriving. People aren't incentivized to go to work and they're struggling to survive. Um, <clears throat> so, so now before we really dive into ETW, how do you view what's happening with the labor with the labor shortage around the world right now? And what do you think we can do about it, <clears throat> if anything? They're not around the world, but in America. Yeah. And and for me, it's not about, I'll just speak for America and what's what's happening here. But for me, it's not about a labor shortage. It's it's a shortage of an of, an, of work environments, um, team environments that are really compelling in terms of um, you know, what a great experience um, it would be for somebody to work there. And so where, where does real self-esteem come from? It comes, I believe, from personal achievement and, and achieving you know, challenging things. Um, I think everybody wants to be on a winning team. It feels amazing. We'll have clients that you go in and the culture is terrible. Nothing we do is good enough and I can't believe this. And thinking about quitting, within two quarters, everybody's at work early, they're running through walls, they're going for it because they're actually really winning. They know what's expected, where they stand, how what they do fits into the success of the overall company. They're included in cross-functional collaboration sessions to help other teams win. 
now they don't want to leave. And it's just incredibly fun. Somebody comes along and says, yeah, I'll give you 20% more money. No way. I'm not, you can't peel me out of here. And so I, I think that's really the challenge is creating those environments. It's, it's, it's almost, um, I don't know, tragic, funny, whatever, when I hear where well, we just can't find people. I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to these leaders that say that saying, no, you just can't create the right environment. You create the right environment, they'll run towards you. What changed? So is it that communities in general and, and we have, we've, we've stopped sourcing our sense of community and our sense of worth from our, our local communities or our non-work communities is that, and that that's degraded. And now the only place that we really can find achievement and, and personal, uh, personal growth is at work. Um, or is it that we, that we had some sort of magical, magical, um, formula like you have with ETW for, or not magical, but just tested formula for keeping people engaged in their work up until a certain point and yeah. some event happened and now the whole work culture is just degraded. What, what happened and what changed over the past, say five to 10 years? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a lot that goes, goes into that. So we had a system, um, you want to support your family. This is what you do. You go through it and all this is working. And then COVID completely blew that up. And I think it, it really, two things, it really exposed that work environments weren't even close to what they could be that keep people motivated and, and really want to be there and contribute. And then our government basically paid people in a lot of cases, um, more money to stay at home. Even if it's 20% less, they would rather do that. And, and so they, it, it's all about incentives and, and where it goes. And I, I've even had, uh, I, I, for me, I was kind of surprised, but a number of people call me and say, can I say, um, these are folks that would make, you know, less than $40,000 a year. Can I say that I got your business card and I asked you for work so they would qualify for more of these checks um, coming in? So I don't know what the process is, what the system is. Um, but I, I, think, I think COVID really exposed the fact that we didn't have energizing environments, didn't really like being there. I'd rather stay at home if I can. And we're, um, it's easier to stay at home with the money that's floating around. All this is going to come to roost here pretty quick um, with, with what's going on. But I, I think that's what's happening. And I, and I think this, this problem of an energizing work environment has been there for 90% of all the businesses out there, small, medium, and large, you know, maybe forever. And they, and they don't think about it. I always, I always thought that get the environment right, get the culture right. I mean, really get it right. And you'll make more money than the competition. And I think we proved that. Um, um, there was nobody in our space that could compete with us globally, even multi-billion dollar companies that set out to compete with us. They couldn't do it. They just gave up. Um, and I, I think it was 100% culture. And I could go into a lot of details there about what, what went into it and how we fostered it, how we, how we built it, how we included everybody in creating it, um, what it would really be, i.e. how are we going to interact with each other? What do we all agree to do? What's the environment that we want? And, and I think that makes you so much more profit, so much more stable, so much more recession proof over time to get that right. Easy to say, um, a lot of people will talk about that, but when you look under the covers at what they're really doing inside the company, the actions aren't, aren't following that. It, I mean, it, it does take some work. You actually have to work at this <laughs> to get it right. So I'm so happy you, you, you went down this rabbit hole because I, I've been so focused on, okay, the physical infrastructure, the physical capacity to make things, the physical vulnerabilities we have from a cybersecurity standpoint, from a um, 
economic security standpoint, from the, 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 the viability of our port system and our logistics infrastructure. But I haven't spent a lot of time thinking or talking to, to, to get, thinking about this, writing about this, or talking to guests about this labor shortage and what's at, what's at its root cause. So not only have what you're saying, if I could summarize, is that not only have we lost our ability to actually make things in the physical capital, uh, manufacturing capital equipment that we need to actually make it, but we've also lost the labor in the sense that we've lost the the productive work culture, or we've never really even established that productive work culture that allows for people to want to thrive and contribute and continue to innovate with it, you know, uh, while using this capital equipment. And that is another pillar that is really shaky in the United States right now is we don't have a labor force that is incentivized on both a monetary from a monetary standpoint, but more so from a cultural standpoint. So our work culture has also become, and our work stuff chain has become very vulnerable um, to different trends for whatever purposes that I'll save for someone else to talk about on a more politically charged podcast. But it's really the work culture that's another leg of the stuff chain supply chain problems that we're seeing in the United States. Not that not the availability of the labor. Yeah. I think the culture's the, the the biggest opportunity. I'll say it that way, and and it's the culture within the organizations, but it's also the sort of national um, culture we have in the country right now. And there's so many things that aren't helpful. You know, certain types of work are not worthy. You know, they're not at the level of other types of works. Like I I fully believe, and a lot of thought leaders, you know, talk about it this way, and I agree. There's dignity in all work. And, and where do you start? Where do you learn to create value and, and then learn to take bigger steps to create even more value and get compensated for that? I, I've, talk, I've spoken with thousands of high school kids and I talk about the value creation stressing journey. And, and that's where, it, if you can, at a very early age, like for me, seven, eight years old, I'm, I'm shoveling snow, I'm mowing lawns, I'm pulling weeds in Spokane, Washington to raise, you know, to, to get money. And it's not with, it's not with friends or family. It's people in the neighborhood that are exchanging, you know, their their accumulated best effort and savings for my best efforts. Hey, that's really cool. Now, how do I take a bigger step? Then I get four paper outs. Okay, what's the next step? I'm a dishwasher. Then I'm a busboy. Then I'm a cook. Then I'm going through high school this way. Um, and by the time I got kicked out of the house at the beginning of my senior year in high school, um, it was a non-event affording an apartment and continuing to go and support my band and do everything else. So I... I think that's a cultural challenge for us to say that there isn't dignity in all work because there really is. And I always looked at, I looked at as just one example, the receptionist in, in a business uh, for my aerospace company, uh, you know, she or he was the ambassador of first impressions and the entire maintenance team cleaning the place. They were ambassadors of second impressions. It's like, it was so important what they did. They're both in sales. What does it feel like for our customers when they come in the front door? You're in control of that to a large degree. And, and so all of this stuff fits together and, and we all need each other going through it. And if I culturally, if I ever had an employee that would disrespect another employee based on the job that they were doing, I would fire him as fast as I possibly could and get him out of the building. And people that would slip through the cracks and be cultural misfits I was really not even half joking when I told the other employees, if you can get them a job at our strongest, most admired competitors, you'll get a bonus. And if you can make them a senior leader, I'll give you a company car and a parking space because they can go suck the life force out of those folks. We don't need it. 
So, you know, back to the health of communities, we all contribute, there's value in all work, there's value in all people, at least the potential for it, you know, they have to have to behave a certain way. Even um, your greatest liabilities can be your greatest assets. <laughs> sure, 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 abs- absolutely. Um, but anyway, what wildly important, and, and this is the X factor when it comes to creating value and accelerating that, that value creation over time. So now let's bring that to ETW. So you learned all these lessons while you were running a wildly successful uh, aerospace repair, aerospace part repair company to be more precise than manufacturing company, um, Mm -hmm. as you correctly pointed out earlier. Um, Thank you for correcting me on that. At ETW, let's start from the beginning. What are the things that companies get wrong? Um, What are the things that you help companies get right? Yeah. The, the first thing they get wrong most of the time and, and our, our new clients are in three buckets, one of three buckets. They're on life support, which is about 20% of them. So our job is to get them off life support. There's, they're getting solid middle performing uh, results. And so our job is to move them into high performing or they're high performers. And in every one of those categories, um, they always go faster uh, by adopting this methodology. And, and um, the, the first thing is just full agreement and alignment on what is the most important number and the work that we should be doing as a senior leadership team to improve it. And, and that's, uh, that's a very interesting conversation. You know, mo- most of these senior leadership teams, like we're doing everything, especially the ones getting great results. Why would we change anything? But when we sort of list out the work that they can do to move the needle and then get them to agree on the work they will do, because there could be 50 things that they could do but there's three or four that'll move the needle more than any other 10 or 12 combined. Um, Everything starts to change and then it starts to accelerate. And then from there, it trickles out to the senior leaders teams. And then that cascades to the, to the front line. Uh, But in there um, setting strategy is really interesting. I I look at um, strategy documents from all the companies that we work with. And I see, they talked about some amazing things. They had great conversations um, when I ask them how they're connecting the dots from strategy to execution, they completely miss it. And that's why most companies, I would argue 80 plus percent of strategy initiatives are not fully executed on because they struggle to connect the dots to that. And then when it comes to culture, that's a big part of what we do. How are you connecting culture to financial results? So the, the overarching definition of culture, if you just want to have a general one that kind of, you know, fits from that standpoint, it would be what we agree to do and how things get done. So what we agree to do is the thing that creates value for our customers. We need to be really good at that every day. And if we don't do that well, our, our paychecks are in jeopardy. So that's important. And then how things get done is how we agree to interact with each other. And I think it's important on that side to include all the employees and coming up with what that set is. Like, what are the behaviors of the best performing folks who've ever worked with on their best days? Let's get that information from every team member, whether it's 40 or 40,000, and consolidate it down to probably no more than six. Um, that really um, stands the test of time because they're powerful. And anytime something doesn't go like you want it to, you can find or like you wanted it to, you could find one or some combination of those behaviors that weren't exemplified or values. Um, So there is that. And then underneath all of it, um, the way I look at it from a more granular standpoint is that culture um, is basically the beliefs, the accountability, the practices, and the decisions from which an organization creates value. And at the senior leadership team, uh, very few that I've seen agree that 
um, decision making is their most important job and that's where they create the most value or or throttle the most value creation and what they choose to do or not do and so we we really want to get that right but then it goes out from there it, um, uh, performance management, compensation strategy, all the things that if you don't get right, it throttles productive energy. We want to completely un unleash that going through. So always starting with a senior team. If we're not aligned there, what are we cascading through the organization? We're just checking boxes and doing things, but they're not, it's not fully there. So that's where we start. And it can be quite a journey as we spend, um, you know, a year to five years with a client. Just a tactical note, where can people learn more about ETW? And then we'll get back to the conversation. Yeah, the, the overview of the MIND methodology, you can go to maxyourmen.com and you can download a free copy of the overview playbook for the MIND methodology. And if companies want to work with you, are you accepting new clients right now? We are. Yeah, we have uh, at any point in time, we have for the internal team about 50 to 60 active clients that we work with, and there's some capacity there. And then we have external consultants that are certified to um, install essentially this mind methodology. So we, we have capacity to do that. You can also go to etw.com um, and learn a lot about this as well. But if you want a copy of the playbook, maxyourmen.com. Thank you for sharing that. Back to ETW. Does this work for manufacturing companies, for digital-based companies? Does this work across the spectrum or does it work, but there's different versions for physical goods and physical manufacturing companies versus fully digital companies? The, the, the methodology we're finding um, works across the board, doesn't matter what it is. Um, and, and again, it go back to the, goes back to the premise. Um, every team has one number that says above all others, they're winning or losing the game. If we invested all of our family's money into that team, how would we know we're getting a good return on that investment? They still may measure 10 or 15 or more other things, but there is one. And then there's work that they, that team should be good at to accelerate the growth in that most important number. Um, and, and so with that being said, uh, we, we have financial advisor firms as small as $100 million in assets under management to north of $10 billion that are using it, getting um, wildly you know, great results here um, uh, in, in how they're applying it. Uh, we have manufacturing, we have restaurants, we have McDonald's here locally in the Phoenix area with uh, 23, 24 restaurants. They've got about 1,400 employees. They want to double by 2025 the number of restaurants. And, and they're getting amazing results. Um, um, kind of blew me away. We started the beginning of last year with them and through COVID, drive-thrus all did well, but in the McDonald's uh, franchise space, out of all the franchisees out there, um, they were just shy of 11% above all of them when it came to pre-debt cash flow. And because of the foundation that was put in place last year, they just took another giant step forward. So this year I could see it being as much as 18 to 20% ahead of the other ones. Uh, so service, manufacturing, financial, medical, a team is a team. They're, 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 every team should be looked at in, in terms of they were um, created to, to basically create some kind of value. And so what is that, what is that value and what's the work it should be good at? So what they do is different, but the methodology, I haven't found a team yet where it doesn't work. Um, and then the, uh, the, the nonprofit world as well is getting great results. 
So I was going to use part of this conversation to drill down, down into the mind methodology and, and talk through when companies are thinking about managing their businesses, managing their stuff chains, managing their strategy development, what are the key metrics that you, that you try to focus on for different sectors? Um, but I think that with that white paper, I think it's probably better to let people go and read that for themselves and use this time to understand um, a little bit more about, about some of your other businesses, if that, if that works for you, um, and how those things either built out of lessons that you learned working at ABLE um, or built, were built from, from other lessons. So would you be willing and, and able to share, ABLE pun intended, um, to, uh, to, share, to share what those other businesses are and, and how they came to be? Yeah, all of them, uh, in, from my view, they, they have to be synergistic. How, do, how does it really help? I, I think that a foundational challenge out there would be the quality of meetings uh, within any organization. So with our full-on mind methodology, it's nice to encompass all of this. So we have technology on for the mind methodology to make it really easy to implement. So all the, the meetings, the, the, the goal, the men alignment, the drivers, the actions, all of it in, in this package to make it easy to sustain and scale the methodology. But there's a giant challenge out there um, uh, around creating meetings that really matter. And so we started a, a business called MindUp, and the website is mindup.co, C-O. And, and in there, it, it connects with uh, Google and Microsoft calendars, and it helps you prepare for the meeting. So we wanted a meeting productivity tool where people can meet any way they want to, but, but make it significantly better because of our tools. And, and we launched this in February of this year, and we're just about 5,000 users, so it's going pretty quickly. And, and uh, super excited about that, getting great feedback. We have, we have evergreen focus groups. Um, what integrations do you want? What do you like? What do you don't like? Um, what changes do you want to see? So we're going through that. And I think that's going to be, um, that, that's something we'd love to get in the hands of millions of people around the world. Right now, it's a, it's a free um, meeting productivity tool. And, and there'll be pay-to-play features coming out here in the next 30 days. So that's, that's one of them. Which is again around the 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 core thesis of hey we need to have better work cultures. It's so important to letting us build things in general. And if we don't have better work cultures, we don't have productivity. We have poor quality of life, and we don't have human flourishing. So yeah. that's awesome. Um, I apologize for interrupting. Please. Uh, no, that's I completely agree with what you said there. And and then another one that we have, which I think is wildly important, and um, um, uh, my partner over there, Jonathan Cottrell, is a CEO, and the company is called Journeyage, and it's journeyage.com, and it's about personalized learning uh, for all the employees. So it, it, there's a lot of LMS systems out there, but this personalized learning space, I think, uh, wildly important. Um, all employees don't learn the same way. Um, you know, culturalizing the, the training for different parts of the, the, the state, the country, other countries, you know, all of it wildly important. So super excited about that. They're doing um, incredibly well um, as a company. Lots of applications, um, you know, for, for what we're doing there. So journeyage.com. Talk to me about that. So talk to me about what the state of employee training looks like right now. So when you were working at ABLE, 
how did you, so were you looking for specialists who knew how to run your, who knew how to run your cold spray machines? Or were you looking for generalists who were really good at identifying manufacturing problems and finding corresponding solutions? Um, and then if you did find generalists, how did you go about training them? Yeah, that, that was something that I don't think we ever back then had a great solution for. So we, we would pair people up. So you'd have a mentor mentee relationship on doing something. We had all the documentation for training but the online piece of it, um, so many different LMSs, and they just kind of walk through and drone through it. It's not exciting. It's not. It wasn't personalized back then. So I was always striving to get that better. We we actually had a team in house that would create content for for training, uh, videos and other things. So let's make it as exciting as we possibly can. And with Journeyage, um, we just want to make sure we understand how somebody learns, and we want to personalize it. Their name is all the way through it. It's not some canned program that you go through. And, and they can pick the, you know, the, you know, the different ways of learning that make the most sense uh, for those individuals. So just really trying to, to make that better. And, and I wish we would have had something like this back in the day uh, with Able. We got it done, uh, but it could have been a lot more effective. Beautiful. Um, was there another, another company that you're excited about right now? Um, there is. So Mentor Cloud is another one. Um, I'm the largest um, outside investor that I know of. And I'm actively involved on a weekly basis with our senior leadership team. Um, and, and it's basically about creating mentoring ecosystems within organizations. And, and if, if, you, if you think about mentoring, so it, it's, it's, it's like selling exercise or diet. Everybody would say, oh, yeah, if I exercise, I'll feel better. If I eat right, you know, things will be better. They buy into the concept. I think mentoring is the same. Everybody would say, wow, that's wildly valuable. But I don't think most people really know how to get the most out of mentoring, how to even think about it, you know, from a mentee standpoint and, and a mentor standpoint. So we like to go inside organizations like uh, Merck, uh, Centender, um, you know, uh, Marriott, and, and find out, well, what are the goals of the organization? What are the cultural, you know, change management things that you want to, to uh, have happen? and then fully connect mentoring to accomplishing their business goals. So we'll spend time with organizations designing exactly what the ideal mentoring program should be like in the organization. And then we bring in all the team members, we identify the mentors for the different areas, um, and the mentees can, can select uh, from those individuals. We have AI that does uh, matching of mentors and mentees, but it's about creating a mentoring ecosystem within an organization designed to accelerate value creation. So we, we think about the mentoring methodology, um, what's the best way to do it, and custom design it for each organization. And then kind of like um, with ETW and our software to support the MIND methodology, the technology is there to make it easy to sustain and scale it. So really excited about that. I mean, if you add up the employees and all the organizations that we're currently working with, it's close to a million employees. That's really cool. And it's... I have, like I mentioned earlier, I haven't thought about this angle of, is it possible that the reason that we can't make things in the United States at scale anymore, is that because of the culture and because we have a culture that doesn't work and doesn't empower people, or is it, or is it the other way around? And, and we don't have the many, we don't have the culture because we don't have the manufacturing anymore. And we don't have these large, um, hyper-effective companies that are able to complete in a global compete in a global marketplace. Do you have any thoughts there? I, I think for sure it's cultural. And, and I think a lot of our political leaders have made it, you know, um, 
really not that attractive to have manufacturing type jobs. Everybody needs to work in a software startup. Everybody's got to be an, uh, an engineer or you know a, a doctor or whatever it is. But the trades and actually making things somehow that became uncool, which is ridiculous. You know, I, in fact, I'm talking to a couple of folks right now about starting businesses in the service area around homes and businesses because you can't find people that do good work. It's a giant competitive advantage just showing up on time and doing what you said you would do. Um, and, and we could get a 20 to 50% premium for that right now uh, going after this. So as a country, um, you know, I'm not impressed with a lot of our elected officials that have decided which jobs are um, to be valued and which ones are to be you know, undervalued. And, and the ones that it seems that they're valuing too are ones that totally strip people of their ability to self-actualize rather than go and create things with their hands. And as you were a key lesson, I think that we took away from this conversation for the audiences is your ability to find value and live a better, more meaningful life is your ability to go into work and have product productivity and self-actualize and create things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really fascinating to me that we're, that we're totally, like you're saying, demeaning these, these really meaningful, creative, productive jobs. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the mindset, so the culture within organizations, we're here to create value. Every decision we make is to accelerate the value that we create. And if we need to vertically integrate, uh, because it makes the most sense, we do whatever it takes to, to make that happen, whatever it takes. And, and those are the decisions that will drive, I believe, more vertical integration, um, um, resolve a lot of the supply chain issues, super excited about additive manufacturing and how that can localize supply chains in, in so many areas. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a cultural um, challenge for the company, um, excuse me, for the country and for individual companies. So I see a declaration of independence behind you. And I had a conversation with a gentleman in the Air Force who started an organization called AFWorks. And when I had him on the podcast, we talked quite a bit about how America's founding documents influenced his innovative um, spirit and the way he thinks about innovation and innovation strategy. Only because it's right in front of my face right now and I can't stop staring at it because it's so beautiful. What are, what are some lessons that you extrapolate from kind of America's core principles or founding documents, Declaration of Independence, et cetera? that you've learned to use, or this might be a totally dead-end question, but I have a feeling it's not a dead-end question uh, that you've learned to use in your business environment and you think we could use more of in general across our stuff chain and throughout the business world. Yeah, um, one of the things I said earlier about a leader's job is to create the environment. So the rules of engagement, the conditions that allow people to be as successful as they choose to be, um, but it's not guaranteed. Um, and and it and that those conditions, the environment, the rules of engagement, they create um, um, a lot of incentives around the behaviors that we want going forward. So foundationally, I look at our founding documents and say, "Wow, look what what it was able to do." And you know, my biggest fear today is that these documents get blown up because one political party um, says we can't use it to our advantage to be a one party you know, state forever. So we're gonna blow that up so we have it. These documents um, created this incredible country, the success that we've had over you know, a couple hundred years. 
And I don't want to blow that up, but that foundationally, I mean, it really helped me think about um, my job is to create this environment, you know, the rules of engagement, everything that goes into it. So that that's incredible. Um, and when I, when I talk to kids about the virtues of starting their own business, um, and I've again, spoken to thousands of them, I actually walk through um, my voting process because I tell them if you're going to run a business, you would like to, I think it's important to vote for elected officials that will create conditions that cause tailwinds, not headwinds for your business. And, and I, I tell them, you know, I have a voting process and I'm not, I'm not even suggesting you adopt my process, but I think it's important that you actually have a process. And I tell them that any person or thing that I vote for has to go through my five pillar filter. And the whole intent behind that filter is to make it easier for all of us to work, live, learn, and play, whatever that is. And I would say, um, uh, I tell them my filters are free people, free markets, personal responsibility, protection from uninitiated force, and only voluntary relationships. Those five things. And the kids almost always ask immediately, what do you mean by only voluntary relationships? And then I ask back, I say, well, would you like to be forced to do something that you don't want to do against your will? Um, and they always say no. And I said, well, if you take our, our income tax system as, as an example, that's not a voluntary system. In the last 20 years, on average, I've paid more than a million dollars in federal income tax each year. And if I don't pay that money, eventually they'll come get me a gunpoint and put me in jail. So it's not voluntary. So, and then they asked, well, what, what would be the right way to do it? And I said, well, consumption tax is really the only moral tax in my view. And I agree on a common you know, synergistic overhead to uh, do things better together uh, when it comes to infrastructure. Um, so what, what's come out of this for me is just how to think about the conditions within these various communities, you know, the United States, all the way down to each state, to the, the counties, the cities, our, our businesses within it. Um, that will cause the best results to happen and, and create an environment where em, employees, they feel like they're on a winning team because they are, they feel successful because they are, they're more motivated because they're actively engaged in coming up with the work. And then we want to keep providing tools and removing obstacles to make it easier and easier for them to do those things. So all of that, and I could probably go on for a couple of days, but all that comes from, wow, look what these founding documents did in terms of creating the environment. That's our job over here and let's not blow it up and let's just keep getting better at it. That's beautiful. And I think that that is a wonderful place to, to wrap up. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we end, in addition to the links that you mentioned throughout here, how can people follow what you're doing, follow along? Are you on social media? No is a welcome answer. Um, how can yeah. people get in touch? Do you have any final requests for the audience? Yeah, I would say connect with me on LinkedIn. Real easy to do and um, happy to share more insights and give you some, some feedback and whatever questions you have. Wonderful. And we'll put your LinkedIn uh, description or link in the not description your LinkedIn link in the in the show notes for this episode. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful to have you, and we will see you on the other side of the next Frontier Podcast. All right, it was great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Next Frontier Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed exploring and creating the next frontier. If you'd like to learn more or dive into more episodes or share this content, head on over to nextfrontierpodcast.com.